1: Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month as a New Year's resolution? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally.
3: Totally Football Show today, fastening our seatbelts for Liverpool Man United. As the Red Devils speed down the M62 for Sunday's game, we all know who's at the wheel, but can they pull off a three-point turn? Will a reverse get them out of first? And is the lad Paul still wishing he'd gone before they left? All of that plus well-played Blades, City with the best bit of Foden since Origami and Mexit as Ozil heads out of Arsenal. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. 14th of January 2021. And joining us today on the Totally Football Show, uh, Lindsay Hooper out of the Black Country. Hey, Lindsay. Hello. Also with us, Duncan Alexander of the Digital Underground. Hello, James. Right. And also, Carl Anker, who's on the beat of the number one football team in England. Hey, Carl. Ahoy, hoy. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, uh, is everyone pumped for this weekend?
4: As Can pumped it as wait. we're going to be, I think, yeah.
2: Right. Theoretically. Yeah, go on then. Because you look at the fixer list and you're like, whoa, it's liverpool Manchester United, the biggest game in the country. They're first and second in the table. This is as good as it gets. But then you think back and you remember all the liverpool Man United games and they often flatter to, to, to deceive. So I just hope it's a good game.
3: We will. We will think back and we will remember some of the ones that absolutely were crackers a little bit later on when we get into the first of two clashes between these two very top sides within the next seven days. Oh, not the next seven days, but yeah, they'll play on Sunday and then again the following Saturday. You know all this. Ed Maines pumped. He says, please, can you not talk endlessly about wolves, please? Ed, we haven't even started the show yet and already you're coming with a negative vibe. Please, can you not talk endlessly, Ed, about us talking endlessly about wolves? Isn't that right, Lindsay?
4: Yes. I can only answer what you ask me, but I do get quite a lot of pelters about talking about Wolves. I happen to go to a lot of the matches. Yeah. I'll answer what you ask me, James. I won't You're offer up anything already. else.
3: Yeah. OK, let's have a look at those midweek scores. Uh, Tuesday, Everton won 2-1 at Wolves, which turned out to be something of a goal fest compared to the other uh, results. Sheffield United with a 1-0 win. That's their first league hey. victory this season. And their second win in a row, of course, after the FA Cup. And it came... At home to 10 man Newcastle. Piece of magic from Paul Pogba earned Man United a 1 0 win at Burnley. Wednesday saw City beating Brighton also 1 0, whilst Fulham, in a fixture moved to this week at short notice, held Spurs to a 1 1 draw. Arsenal Palace is still to come, but as we near the halfway mark of this unusual season, the table's looking very interesting indeed. Man United three points clear. On top, Liverpool are second, leading a group of five teams separated by just three points. As themselves, Man City, Leicester City, Everton and Spurs. Man City, who were 11th six weeks ago, now just a point behind Liverpool with a game in hand. Down the other end, Fulham are now just two points behind Brighton with two games in hand. Sheffield United, still bottom, nine points now from safety. Duncan. You couldn't contain your whoop of delight when I mentioned Sheffield United's win over Newcastle. Their first victory in 186 days in the league.
2: Yeah, they beat Frank Lampard's Chelsea in July, and now they've beat Steve Bruce's Newcastle. It's been a, it's been a long time coming. I think they're not as bad. I know this is a, is a big shout, but I still think they can stay up. Um, they're definitely Ooh. gonna. They're definitely going to overtake Derby's 11 points. That's that's fine. Um, they just... You know, they're 13th for XG this season. They're, they're still creating reasonable chances. They just need someone to start sticking the ball in the back of the net. And Ree and Brewster actually looked reasonable. He came on and it was at least getting into some good positions. And, uh, yeah, I think they can do it. I mean, they were helped by playing an absolutely... You know, just ridiculously defensive and semi-pointless Newcastle team. And, you know, I think... I know lots of Newcastle fans get really annoyed about how, you know, Steve Bruce gets a relatively easy ride in the media, possibly, you know, because of who he is and who he played for and etc. And, yeah, it is true. I mean, they just had no ambition in this game. Um, they're playing a team who haven't won all season. You know, they Ryan Fraser got sent off for two stupid tackles. Um, but even before that, they, you know, you don't need to be playing 5-4-1 against Sheffield United. Um and, uh, yeah, Newcastle aren't out of it, I don't think. Um, I think the reason that Sheffield United can stay up is that they do have... There is at least three or four teams above them that could, could all be kind of pulled in. So OK, we'll far be bit
3: from me to bring bring you the numbers, Duncan, but Newcastle are currently seven points off the drop. As for Sheffield United, well, the lowest points total that a team has ever survived with in the Premier League is 34 in a, in a 38-game season. That was West Brom in 2005. Even to get to 34 they would need to pick up 29 points from their remaining 20 games. You reckon that's doable?
4: I don't think so. I I'm, I I think it's nice to be optimistic, Duncan, but I think psychologically that is a mountain to climb. And right. I don't think it will help either that Fulham have been doing so well. They've got these two games in hand. Uh, they can see probably teams above them pulling away uh, and you're relying on teams like Newcastle and Brighton being dragged right in it. I I think it's great. I don't. I don't think they will get the same total as Derby. I agree with you on that.
2: Yeah. No. Logically, this all makes sense. But I mean, West Brom are statistically one of the worst teams we've ever seen in the Premier Mm. League this season. Um, And the fact they're not bottom says more about Sheffield United than them. Um, Brighton just you know can't buy a win at the moment. And then yeah, maybe Newcastle, Burnley. You know, Burnley have scored nine goals in sixteen games. That's I mean, both admirable and... How many have
3: Sheffield United scored in that period, Duncan?
2: They've also got nine. But that just shows the difference, doesn't it? You know, Burnley have managed to pick up... No, that's exactly the same. It um, doesn't show any difference. No, 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 (laughs) Burnley have managed to pick up 11 more points from their nine goals. So Um, why
3: does that make them a likelier candidate to go down?
2: Because... Well, I know. It's vibes, isn't it? You're the longest man, and you're talking about vibes. I just, honestly... We've seen a lot of strange things in the last year and uh, Sheffield United staying up is going to be one of them.
3: At the moment it sounds like science fiction, frankly, but if they were to get the result this Saturday at home to a Spurs team that already dropped points uh, this uh, midweek against a bottom three opponent, wow, I guess uh, we'd be revisiting our... uh, a ridicule of your of your uh, of your <laughs> assertions there, Duncan. What, what do you what do you think? Uh, Spurs coming into this off that one one draw against Fulham on Wednesday. Sheffield United's prospects against them, Carl.
5: Oh, I'm pulling a face. I think the Sheffield United team is a lot better than what they currently are, and they have the potential and the talent ceiling to be of Premier League quality. But I think such is the level of the fall and the... I feel bad using the word rot, but it is a rot. Um, I don't think they can clean house and pop their head above the relegation zone in time. I think this will be a huffing and puffing Spurs victory.
3: They're not very good at those, of course. We, we saw them dropping points at home to uh, hastily arranged opponents Fulham on Wednesday... A game that had been uh, postponed from the end of December but was reinstated on Monday because Villa couldn't uh, have their game against Spurs. Uh, so they slotted that one in. Fulham coming up, uh, before we touch on what Spurs did, with one of their best performances of the season. Oh, uh, yeah. At short notice.
5: This new midfield of uh, Angusa and Harrison Reed, there's a bit of bite to it. Um, this Fulham team looks, I, they're probably a genuine goal scorer away from being safe in terms of Premier League. They looked really naive at the start of the season. Uh, I remember Scott Parker talking about how that Fulham team needed to smell danger or or sense the red light, which I thought was a really nice little turn of phrase. And they they are growing into Premier League football and developing a little more of a a chaotic streetwise edge to it. it. It's just the case with goals with them. And I think it's similar to Newcastle have the potential to score goals and choose not to. Brighton are uh, loads of neat and tidy footwork, but like the knockout punch. Fulham just need a goal scorer.
2: And it's, it's this they weird are, thing. They
4: are doing and trying something different, which has got my attention. I, I think this is the best that Fulham have played mm-hmm. so far. Um, I think the back three is obviously working very well for them and just generally an observation when watching Premier League teams lately is that you you're getting all these great overlapping runs, fullbacks overlapping, getting wide width of the pitch and then putting in great crosses but often there isn't anyone there, I mean with the exception of Harry Kane at Spurs in this match in particular, you know maybe Olivier Giroud at Chelsea um, you know Jimenez when he's fit and Calvert-Lewin, there aren't those big target men anymore in, in the game game and we keep seeing the game going out wide crosses in and either players not being in the box or not making the runs at the right time and what I thought with with Anguissa who who definitely caught my eye as well Carl is that he wasn't scared to cut inside and this is something that I think is going to be really key for Fulham instead of using the width let's attack through the middle let's get into the box and then you've got other possibilities for goal scorers to pop up
3: Although it was actually a move from Wide that led to their equalizer. We well, with that, the exception you know. of
4: that. But I, <laughs> yeah. I just think generally speaking that they'll they'll maybe get more joy in that area.
5: They've got Yes, they've gone from a team that looked a bit brittle to having sort of that, that thrust that you've described there as well.
2: They also look like they're having fun. If you remember the, the last few Fulham seasons in the Premier League they go through three managers letting 80 goals and go down and everyone's unhappy they even if they go down this season I think their fans will accept they, they've given as best they can and they're and they're having a go you know they they were brilliant in the second half against Spurs um, and you know Adamola Lookman came on and, and made the goal and yeah I mean I I'd, I mean I know that my new stance today is I want everyone to stay up and maybe that'll <laughs> happen but I'd, I'd like them to stay up.
4: Anthony Robinson as well. I thought he deserved a lot of credit for his performance.
3: What about Ariola as well?
4: And Ariola, those two saves did a nice Mm. on, which were were key, weren't they?
3: Mm. So, as you say, they look really good in the second half, but does that happen an awful lot to teams when they're playing Tottenham, and Tottenham are a a goal up? Jose was once again perplexed that the team that he manages and has done for 14 months didn't get it about (laughs) killing off the result. Um, I found
5: that... Very funny. Sort of. What, about a week ago? He was saying, "If if this team doesn't perform, it's very much on him." And then after the, the draw, he was very much, "Oh, um, you yeah, know, my defense wasn't doing the necessary things," and he's just going, "Oh." He's doing it again. He also
2: he also had the classic Mourinho thing of, like, before the game, he was hugging Scott Parker, you know, yep. he, his former player. Let's hope for a good game, Scott. And at the end, it was the most perfunctory of fist bumps. It's like, yeah. Yep.
4: And we, you would yeah. find it funny, Carl, because there's a slight irony, isn't there, in the fact that Manchester United can hold on to a 1-0 lead against a dogged Burnley. <laughs> and Mourinho, who left there, can't get his Spurs side to do the same.
5: It's been a really interesting... Ebb and flow to this Spurs project on the Mourinho. So you know, last season was largely miserable, and they sort of huffed and puffed and got themselves into Europa League. And then I thought it was quite humorous that you know Spurs go top or thereabouts the moment some crowd, you know, fans are allowed back in, which is a bit like Superman being powered up by the sun, Mourinho being powered up by the the vibes of crowd. I'm like, oh, of course, he's a showman. This will happen. Or the idea that in an inherently chaotic season, Mourinho would be profitable, but the fact that we've reverted already to this idea of, well, if they do well, I'm a genius, and if they do badly, it's individual mistakes. I'm just like, right. oh, why but does he not get an HR person? Why is he so bad? At this? So,
3: <laughs> does he have a point? I mean, oh, is it his fault?
5: I am tainted by my experiences at Manchester United, but All I will right. well, say let's... what he does do, and I think mm. what, what this Spurs team has been good at and not so good at in wildly divergent games this season is they will... They will play well for about 20 minutes, um, get that goal, and then they tend to, I don't want to say shut up shop, but they tend to play within themselves for a certain amount of time and just sort of let the third quarter of a, of a game go. Uh, and then what you get there is between the 70th and 90th minute, the game essentially turns into a coin toss because the opposition team will still get chances on goal because even though Spurs' defence is much improved, they defend in a sort of meat-and-potatoes conventional manner. Eric Dyer is much improved, but he is a meat-and-potatoes conventional centre-back. So, you know, tackles, heading... He can be expensive, but you don't want him to be too expensive, if that makes sense. Um, so Spurs can be got at, to which... I mean, this is the baffling thing. When you have a Spurs team with so many attacking options, like Eric Lamella, Stevie Bergwine, when you've got Gareth Bale there and thereabouts... <laughs> what? Why are Gareth Bale for got- <laughs> <plays the> Spurs? <laughs> Apparently so. But when you've got those options... And I know why Mourinho doesn't go for it because he's Jose Mourinho, but he should not do that.
2: But here's my theory is that because Spurs last night wasn't as bad as some of the games where they've drawn 1-1, you know, they actually had a number of good chances. Son, who's massively overperformed on XG this season, actually wasted, you know, some good chances last night, hit the post, had um, Ariola made some good saves, as we said. But the reason I think Mourinho's baffled is that I don't think he's telling them to, to shut up shop, but I think the Tottenham players, and we've seen it at other clubs as well that he's managed, are so worried about how angry he can get, like he possibly did after the West Ham game where they threw away a three-goal lead, that they, without thinking, subconsciously, actually become more defensive. Interesting. Um, so, so it's neither the player's fault or Mourinho's fault, and yet, deep down, it's both of their faults.
3: Like the way he chewed out Dele Alli, for example, sends a bit of a message to the rest of the team.
4: See, I, wonder, I wondered if it could have been the flip I wondered if it might have been the opposite way around that um, it's trying to shift a mentality of Spurs naturally having the last four or five seasons wanted to be on the front foot to try and get them to not be that way minded and that it, it just hasn't happened yet. But I, I think Mourinho at the moment, if you're talking about criticism of him, I think he's got a free pass for a period of time whilst there's a possibility of a League Cup because that, that's it. You know, if he delivers a trophy, puts his feet up for a while and says, well, I did what? came here to do. So right. I think whilst they're doing so well I th- I think he can avoid some criticism.
3: You're right they're not just in in with the league cup but they also are only 3 points of second place at the moment in
2: but the But they've league lost votes. they've lost 10 points from very winnable positions. Um, and they've also they've won two of their last eight Premier League games. You know, if they'd have won four of those they'd be, you know, well up there. I mean it's me, about it the will same hurt figure as
3: Liverpool though, isn't it?
2: Yeah, true, but it will hurt Mourinho because he will know, a man of his experience, he will know that this league is, is wide open for someone to win that possibly, you know, in a normal season wouldn't be um, potential league champions. So mm. it's, it's really going to be rankling him that they've thrown away all these points. Mm. All
3: right, well, Fulham have Chelsea, interesting game which we'll be talking about later. We'll also be looking forward to Wolves' clash with West Brom after their defeat at home to Everton midweek. But a couple of other results to mention. One is Man City doing Brighton 1 0. Phil Foden with a very finely placed goal. Raheem Sterling missing the chance to double their lead with that penalty late on. Uh, and Man United making no mistakes as they won 1 0 at Turf Moor to go top of the table. Paul Pogba with the goal. United now three points clear. And yes, in the seven seasons since Sir Alex Ferguson retired, they have never been higher than second at this stage of the season. Right now, they lead Liverpool by three, and who do they face this weekend but the
0: Reds? RB Leipzig gift shop? Yeah, uh, I want to return a player. Uh, He's not working. He was supposed to help me achieve my goals, but I don't think he even knows what a goal is. Ah, yeah. Well, uh, all I can say is that he was just fine working when he was to London dispatched. Oh. Lampard and Chelsea can't seem to get their money back, but you can with Paddy Power's Acca Cracker. If one leg of your four-plus-fold Acca lets you down, get a free bet on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet, £10. Min odds, one to five on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18plusbgumblerware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an nba game and more head over to michelopeultra.com slash courtside to learn more
1: on apple Podcasts, spotify smart speaker and now ad-free on the athletic this is the totally football show with james richardson encyclopedic knowledge of this fixture
2: he's on for more reasons than one Steven Gerrard oh no look
1: at this no sooner on than off
3: there you go biggest fixture in the English game they say Liverpool Man United in the next week we've got two of them FA Cup fourth round clash at Old Trafford a week on Saturday and this Sunday in the league at Anfield Duncan so much history and yet this is only the second time in the Premier League that these two teams have faced each other as first and second.
2: Yes Um, I think a lot of people think they were first and second when they went to the Old Trafford game in 08-09 but Liverpool were just behind Chelsea going into that match um, and then won 4-1 but yeah the the last time they were first and second was uh, 97 April 97. Um, It was the season Liverpool under Roy Evans were, were pretty good that season and probably should have won the league but for david james being a bit erratic um at various points and uh yeah they they lost that game um and then they had a terrible end to the season and there was one of the early premier league era kind of catchphrases emerged which was um fourth in a two-horse race so <laughs> liverpool were all summer people said <coughs> oh liverpool were f- fourth in a two-horse race and you wonder you know that obviously led not that far into the future to the um the uh, arrival of Jared Houllier and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, in the litany of Liverpool coming close to, to winning the league before they, they did last season, that was one of the better chances um, and one of the better games between the two of them at Anfield.
3: Hmm. Interestingly, it was this game which heralded the arrival of uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on the bench because uh, Mourinho losing 3-1. That was at Anfield, wasn't it, Carl?
5: It was indeed. Uh, I want I want to say it was on just before boxfish before just before christmas yes i think 2018 I, I believe i was on this podcast being very very sad and disappointed at right. the state of manchester united at the time well Paul it's Paul, turned Paul, out pretty
3: well for you though hasn't it oligarosocial coming in talk of 21 <laughs> in 21 i see from some man united fans now 3 points clear at the top of the table is this the biggest game in your calendar for united fans more than man city Carl?
5: i think so i think it it's the perfect combination of historical and geographical beef for Manchester United fans and I definitely I put this as the most important Premier League game in Solskjaer's two and a bit years in charge of Manchester United there have been those in the years where supposedly he's been a game away from saving his job but I think this is one more interesting test in Solskjaer's career. So I, it's still quite interesting that despite the league position for Manchester United, they probably go to Anfield as the underdog in this game, which probably suits Solskjaer as well. Um, I think what's become really interesting is Solskjaer's has become a genuinely inventive coach for these one-off games. So um, in the Burnley game, you saw... United take short corners to try and... So Bruno Fernandes, and I think it was Marcus Rashford, um, did a short corner technique and then tried to put it to the back post to try and get to Harry Maguire, which was a newer wrinkle to their set-piece routine, which was Solskjaer's way of saying, I'm taking this game very seriously. So I'll be surprised and intrigued as to what new wrinkles he adds to this game against Liverpool. I wonder if he's been studying um, set-piece footage from what Southampton did against Liverpool to get Danny's mm. goal.
3: Interesting. It is a huge match for United. It arrives at a pretty critical time for Liverpool as well. Let's get the view on Merseyside. As we're joined by James Pearce, Liverpool correspondent for Yeah, The Athletic. Uh, James, thanks for for joining us.
6: Uh, first off, is this the biggest game in Liverpool's calendar? Yes, I, I believe so. I think um, you know, I think probably Liverpool fans will be drawn between between this and the ones against Everton. But I just think there is more at stake when Liverpool go up against Manchester United. Um, The Merseyside derbies have been, you know, it's been a pretty one-sided thing uh, this century, but, um, but no, it's, you know, there's so much, there's so much up for grabs, Liverpool, Manchester United, not just, you know, two iconic football clubs, but between two proud cities, you know, it's spiky, it's hostile. There's, I think there's a mutual dislike, probably a bit of jealousy at times as well in terms of the success the other one has enjoyed. So, um, so, yeah, it's, th- this one's the biggest for me.
3: Plenty of history. They, they built that canal, of course, and did the docks. <laughs> then then they knocked Liverpool off their perch. So I mean, it would be catastrophic from a Liverpool point of view to lose them Sunday and then go six points behind Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side.
6: I think that adds another element to the rivalry, the fact that you know, despite Liverpool and Manchester United winning so much over the decades, it's actually been quite rare for both of them to be gunning for the same prizes at the same times. Because you know, you look at you know United in the doldrums when Liverpool dominated the 70s and 80s, then roles reversed in the 90s. Um, so you know, now you've got a situation where where United have to be regarded as genuine serious challengers to Liverpool's. Top flight crown, and you know United go into this game with momentum. There's no doubt about that. Liverpool, have, their form has been stuttering, only two points out the last nine. The goals have dried up. Um, yet they do have the advantage of having had, you know, probably better preparation for this than United, who played against Burnley in midweek. Klopp's had the time on the training ground that that he's been ruining, he's been missing out on. So I think you know every Liverpool fan will expect a big response from his team on Sunday. James, what do you think is behind
3: Liverpool's l- loss of momentum?
6: I think it's a whole host of factors. I think, um, I mean, not you know, the, the the most obvious one is the injuries, and, and in particular the, the way in which they've been decimated defensively. I think it's you know, on, on the face of it, you look at their defensive record, and it, and it's actually pretty impressive since Van Dijk's been out, and of course Gomez as well. But it's it's more than you know, rather than the goals they've conceded, it's it's the knock on effect in terms of the team just Can't operate in the same kind of way, you know. Van Dyke and Gomez are so key to the way Liverpool build play from the back. Um, you know, I think in a lot of games they've dominated possession but without really looking particularly menacing with it. You know, they Klopp has you know frequently bemoaned a lack of rhythm and fluency to their attacking play, and and of course, the, you know, the knock on effect of those absences is that you know, Fabinho, who for me is the best holding midfielder in the Premier League, has. You know, it's it's weakened Liverpool's midfield by playing him at centre back. Of course, Thiago was bought to to give Liverpool a real creative spark, but he's barely featured due to injury. Um, and and then you know you've got the other issues with positive COVID tests and and the, the crazy schedule. Um, so it's yeah a whole host of things have contributed to you know Liverpool dropping. I think it's what is it, 18 points already this season, which you know put in the context of the title winning season. They only. Drop fifteen in in
3: the in the whole campaign. All right. Well, Tiago, you mentioned uh, being one of the contributing factors to all of this is his absence, but he is back now, and a lot of people are suggesting that might be the spark that will see Liverpool retain something of their, their former form. How how easy is it going to be for United to to box him in, and where do you think United can hurt Liverpool?
6: Yeah, I, th- I think you know, Tiago. Thi- if Liverpool are going to win the game on Sunday, then Tiago is is going to have to. Deliver the 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 biggest and best performance of his of his uh, of his Liverpool career so far because there's there's no doubt that they have been lacking that spark in the middle of the pitch and he is you know he's a world class performer he is better equipped than anyone to to address that issue um and there were promising signs against you know Aston Villa in the FA Cup I think from Manchester United viewpoint they will be licking their lips I think at the prospect. Of, of trying to prey on Liverpool's vulnerability in that centre-back position because um, Jurgen Klopp's got a big decision to make. Uh, Joel Matip is is facing a real race against time to be fit. I think, you know, the, it seems to be at the moment it's probably going to come too soon for him. So then, you know, he's faced with a real dilemma. Does he play Jordan Henderson at centre-back? Um, which, which, again, similar to Fabinho, you know, if you play the two of them there, they can fill in there, but they're not. They're not specialist centre-backs and that weakens Liverpool's midfield. Or does he turn to one of his rookies, Nat Phillips or Rhys Williams? And um, certainly if one of those two were on the team sheet, you'd imagine that, that Solskjaer would be uh, would be telling United to to really target them. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating contest. And, it, and I think also in terms of how does Solskjaer play it, in terms of will, will United just sit back as they have done in recent meetings with Liverpool or... Or will they will they sense a bit of vulnerability there and and try and play on the front foot? I think
5: the midfield battle is going to be really intriguing. Um, I think the big question, James, is um, how do you think a player like Genie and will factor into a game like this?
6: Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say when has been one of the kind of the unsung heroes really of this Liverpool team so far this season. I think um, when Liverpool have, have, have functioned well, when has been at the absolute. Forefront, and um, you know, he's he's never going to be the kind of player that catches people's attention with you know a huge number of goals or assists. But you know, it, it, with it, with so much turmoil, with so many injuries, so many changes in in recent months, you know, he's been a constant there. Probably him and Andy Robertson have been probably the two kind of players who you know their levels haven't haven't really dropped. So um, yeah, I think you know undoubtedly he will be. In that midfield department on uh, on Sunday again, you know it, it'd be him, Tiago, and then the big decision for Klopp is, you know, does he does he think that Liverpool are best served playing Henderson in there? You know that that is certainly Liverpool's strongest available midfield, but if Henderson's needed at centre half, then you're probably looking at Oxay Chamberlain or, or James Milner being the third man in that area. James,
4: have you had some intel then on Thiago? Because you you sound like you're very confident he's playing. You you've pinned a lot on him in this chat, but I, I had read that he'd missed a couple of training sessions this week. I didn't know whether it was actually nailed on that he'll play.
6: Well, he was certainly involved in in yesterday's session uh, at the AXA training centre. So um, so yeah, I've got no reason to believe at the moment that he that he he won't be starting. I think you know, if, as as long as as long as he's fit and like I said, he he played a, a full part in the session yesterday, then. I fully expect him to be out there. I think you know Klopp has been careful not to overburden him with playing time because you know, it was a really horrible injury he, he suffered after that. Um, you know, horrendous challenge from Richarlison in the Merseyside derby back in October. You know, a few, um, you know, a few times he was on the brink of a comeback and then broke down again, and you know was suffering from discomfort in his knee. Um, but you know, they, you know, he has had you know, those outings against Southampton and against Villa when you know, of, of course, you have to. You know, you have to class it against the you know the fact that Villa were playing a very very youthful team, but um, you know he, he just makes a big difference. You know he he gives Liverpool bought Tiago because they wanted to become more unpredictable. They wanted to keep evolving. They wanted a new dimension from the center of the pitch, and they just haven't had that because you know I think he's only played 240 minutes of, of top flight football this season. But um, yeah, have, having him back for a game of this magnitude is 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 absolutely huge for Klopp. And
2: also, really weirdly, this is going to be Thiago's home debut. Um, There's not many players signed in one transfer window that make their home debut in the following transfer window. But, um, (laughs) yeah, I I agree with what everyone's been saying. It's it's obviously a great player and it should make a, a really big difference in this one.
3: Intriguingly, Sunday will be exactly five years, to the flipping day since Man United last won at Anfield. It was January 17th, five years ago, 2016. A 1-0 victory, courtesy of Wayne Rooney. So Louis van Hales United emerging victorious from Anfield. Wow. Hey, Carl, uh, last time you met up with Liverpool was almost a year ago and you were 30 points back and now you're three ahead. You can't argue with those
5: numbers. I believe I was in the, t- the offices watching uh, Mohamed Salah bear down on goal as Daniel James tried his best to keep up and I repeatedly kept going, foul him, foul him, you have to wow. foul him, uh, as Daniel James tried his hardest but just bounced off. Salah and uh, showed the golfing class between the two teams at that point in time but I think such as this corona disrupted season I wouldn't say it's balanced the playing field of uh, the Premier League but it has just thrown in so many odd elements that you can get a team that just has everything click for a little bit and as Manchester United have shown you can just fly up the table I don't believe Manchester United will win the title I think there's something about Manchester City just lurking in the wings mm. that leads me to believe they're going to spoil everyone's fun and be there or thereabouts. But I think what's going to be really interesting is seeing how long this Manchester United team can stay in the title race. Are they going to Solskjaer have spoken in press conferences about, he stressed that we're even though it is January, we're still not halfway through the Premier League season, which is one of those, oh God, this thing's going to last forever <laughs> statements. But uh, this is... A really good place to be for Manchester United and Manchester United fans and uh I am hope you can hear how much I'm smiling as I'm saying all this
4: I've heard so much from smiling Manchester United fans lately I, I just find it impossible that you're so delighted at being top in in January come on
5: it's it it hasn't happened in a while I think the first it's the first time being top since the first day of the 18-19 season. And that only happened because Manchester United played on the Friday compared to everyone else playing Saturday, Sunday. Um, And I think it's not only the idea that Manchester United are top, but it's also the idea that Manchester United are are top in a very annoying way. So you've Mm. got the conversation about penalties. You've got this very large conversation about whether Manchester United are good or not, which again remains very confusing. I think this team is comprised of many footnotes and caveats and ifs, yets and maybes. So the fact that Manchester United have managed to get to top in an inherently chaotic season by being just a bit weird makes gives everything a sort of tongue-in-cheek quality um, and Manchester United fans at least a good amount of Manchester United fans do enjoy not only being top but being top in a very annoying way and I think this is a very annoying way and time to be top of the Premier League table.
2: But it's It's, you know, United are essentially like maybe Liverpool were in the 90s and 2000s where it's kind of fun being top of the league. It's unusual and, oh, this is a bit like when we were good back in the day. But Liverpool seem ominous. You know, Klopp's had a whole week to prepare. And, you know, I think the first 10 minutes of this game are going to be extraordinary because Liverpool are going to come out in a kind of, we're the champions, you know, remember us, we're, you know, you thought we were in decline. I'm sorry, we're not. And I think... If United can weather that first 10 15 minutes then you know they they might have a chance but I also feel like Liverpool are going to come out like a like a hurricane.
3: So we were asking James where United can can damage Liverpool what's the what's the inverse of that where do you think United are going to be most vulnerable to Liverpool?
5: This is going to be a battle of the sixes. So I imagine Olegon Sasha's got a preference now to play in this... His plan A is this 4-2-3-1 shape. And then in the bigger games, he tends to play Fred and Scott McTominay. Um, And that pairing not only has complementary strengths, but he has complementary weaknesses. So they sort of hide each other's assets. They're not the most creative, but when you put Bruno Fernandes on top of that, that's fine. And if I'm Jurgen Klopp, I think you have to play Jordan Henderson as the six. He's almost better than Fred and Scott McTominay in one player as a number six. And he also has better creative passing. If Liverpool play their best sort of central midfield offering, so sort of Henderson is the deepest line central midfielder, One um, Wijnaldum, who is very press resistant and can also recycle possession really, really well. And then you put on top of that Thiago, who is incredibly confident and has the confidence of Bruno Fernandes in terms of making line-breaking passes, but also makes better line-breaking passes than Bruno Fernandes, then Liverpool can dominate. Um, it's all about who's going to stamp on someone in the deepest-lying areas of midfield. And I think providing Liverpool put Henderson in midfield, they will have the advantage. I think Marcus right Ra- It's a weird game because also I think Marcus Rashid might have to play on the right-hand side. and I've got a sneaking suspicion that that balances out Manchester United better if it is to his own individual detriment
3: looks like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer feels that too perhaps what about paul pogba who scored that lovely goal a <laughs> lovely goal playing
5: in black and white suits him eh it really does i think he's got he's got the he's got the aura of a young man who knows he's graduating university in <laughs> a month and he's like yeah i'm going to graduate in a month i've passed all my exams it's all done um he's got a certain swagger to him i'm enjoying him when he's stationed on the left hand side because this fred scott McTominay, Pivot sort of gives him the protection in defense in in defensive actions. Even though he was really really good in defensive actions in the deeper line position and in the six uh, against Burnley, he. I think we've talked about Pogba a lot, and the more we get to see Pogba in this state, and credit to Solskjaer and his man management as to how he's used Pogba after Raiola's statements after the uh, ahead of the Champions League game. I think what's become quite obvious is that we sort of misinterpreted the leadership style Paul Pogba brings to this Manchester United team. He very much has the aura of someone who could be an alpha male and could control the dressing room by grabbing people by the scruff of the neck and telling them what to do, but he very much seems to be a more chill surfer dude, which can throw people for a bit of a loop. The idea that Paul Pogba could do everything but chooses not to because he prefers to be relaxed uh, runs a bit counter to how we view uh, all action midfielders in England. In my up, opinion. up
4: until now, though, he hasn't really unnerved Liverpool in this fixture, has he?
5: No, he has not. So if you remember the, the game that uh, Sky marketed as Red Monday mm. at the, I want to say, the 17-18 season. So when Manchester United were in a good run of form and did look like possible title contenders. Mm. And then Mourinho sort of applied the handbrake, moved Pogba to the 10. And the game was just an incredibly dire 0-0 draw. I think that was one of the, the nadirs in both Pogba and the, the United Liverpool games in recent years
3: why is putting Pogba in a, in the number 10
5: role uh, applying the handbrake so he applied the handbrake by moving Pogba from a deeper position further forward because he because in what a lot of managers are now beginning to realize is Pogba can be uh, he can give up the ball a lot if you right. put, if you send two midfielders against him um, right so while he's improved in recent weeks he has he is a player who can be a little bit too reactive to the press that comes towards him rather okay. than to the press as a team. So a lot of managers in bigger games go, get closer to goal so you're not losing the ball closer to the penalty area.
3: Right. And I suppose it's also about who came in behind in his place as well. Indeed. Hey, Carl. just before we move on, on the subject of history, did you see that thing about the St Bernard this week? You probably know this story, but uh, I think it was our, our pals at Mundial who who tweeted out a link to a fantastic 1970s BBC report about the, the, the key role that a St Bernard Dog had in the founding of Man United and making them the club that they are. You, do you know this story?
5: I have bookmarked the video. OK, so. it's,
3: it's <laughs> worth watching. It's a fascinating window into 1970s BBC sports reporting, uh, but also the, the very origins of the institution we now know as Man United. I won't spoil it, but there's a, a young girl and a love for a big shaggy St Bernard... And uh, you know what, there's a screenplay in that somewhere.
4: Beethoven. (laughs) There's the screenplay.
3: Yeah. Uh, Now, that's what's happening on Sunday at Anfield. Next up, uh, let's have a quick check on some of the weekend's other delights.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power.
3: Key matchup this weekend, arguably, is in the black country. Wolves, that's right, taking on West Brom. First off, Lindsay Hooper. Which kind of derby is this one?
4: It's a black country derby. We had this discussion, didn't we, before? Yeah,
3: but then it turned out you got it wrong.
4: (laughs) No, it was because I I actually wasn't very eloquent in the way that I put it, but... um, on reflection and listening back, I, I could have been a lot neater about it. Okay, Look, so. Both, it, both teams are in the Black Country. It's a Black Country derby. Birmingham right. and Aston Villa are in Birmingham. That's a Birmingham derby. Okay.
3: This is also a West Midlands derby, yeah?
4: This is a Black Country derby.
3: Not a West Midlands derby.
4: Exactly. So okay. anyone, anyone punting it as a West Midlands derby, actually, it is a Black Country derby.
3: What is a West Midlands derby? Uh,
4: Villa against Wolves, Villa okay. against West Brom.
3: Right, and what is an East Midlands derby? That's Leicester against somebody, but who? Derby
4: or Leicester Forest,
2: Forest Derby. Yeah. yeah, okay. Feel sorry for Coventry because they want to be rivals of Villa, <laughs> but everyone forgets.
4: They could do both, oh. couldn't they?
3: Having established that, thanks, Lindsay, for that. Um, they haven't met each other. It says here for nine years. No, rules from so West Brom.
4: This predates Nuno taking charge. It predates Connor Cody as captain. Do any of them really know what this means? Uh, I've asked that. Apparently, the dressing room are aware.
3: They do know the Black Country Derby. Do you remember what happened last time they faced each other?
4: Yes, it was the 12th of February 2012. We lost (sighs) 5-1. Mick McCarthy was sacked the very next day. Wow. Um, And there on in came a period of spiral decline for Wolverhampton Wanderers. Went with a double relegation drop down to League One. Needed Kenny Jackett to resurrect us. Um, but no, lo- no looking back since.
3: Duncan's smoking. You want to say jacket required, don't you? Say it. Duncan. I was going to
2: say n- no jacket required, <laughs> but you're right in this case. Jack- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Anyway, die, you're reading my mind. Mick-,
3: <laughs> Mick McCarthy, who was actually also uh, fired just last week by mm. a team in Cyprus.
2: Well, do you remember this sacking? This sacking was. Wolves hadn't planned to sack him, I don't think. But the, they had no the plans. Did they? I think that's what yeah.
4: materialised.
2: The, well, exactly. The the manner of defeat to the arch rivals was so bad that they were like, "Well, there's no choice. This auto triggers the sack." And then, yeah, they didn't have any plans in place and and couldn't get anyone in. And poor Terry Connor had a had a mm. difficult few months, mm. didn't he? Gee, I still think,
4: and I still maintain, if we'd have stuck with Mick, that we may may have stayed in. I think <laughs> there'd definitely been more of a fight.
3: Okay, if if Lindsay, you were to lose five one. Against West Brom this time around, would that would that spell the end for Nuno? Would he be out, do you think?
4: No, no. Okay. I, I think Nuno is under a bit more scrutiny than he was, but mm. there are so many passes for him um, in terms of injuries, in terms of the way he's brought in new players, trying to transition those. He's addressed a, a couple of the issues. You know, brought Morgan Gibbs-White back from loan, uh, Patrick Catrone to come in. I think Raul Jimenez and that injury... Um, has been huge for Wolves and Jota going to Liverpool as well.
3: Right, no wins in five. The the latest uh, disappointing result, of course, coming just this midweek uh, when uh, Wolves went down two one at home to a strikerless Everton team. See, they yeah. didn't need a striker. Uh, <laughs> are you seeing any any signs of of Nuno turning this particular uh, tricky situation around, Lindsay?
4: I think he will. I I don't think we're going to finish in the in the top eight um, this season. I think there's too much and other circumstances that that he's had to deal with, particularly with Jimenez. And I don't think that they'll end up buying and spending in January. So he's got quite a small squad to choose from. Uh, but there was enough that I saw in the Everton performance that I think. Uh, would substantiate that they're going to be fine. Um, what worries me in this game in particular against a side against, like West Brom, who are after their first win under Allardyce, is they're likely to just lump the ball forward, set pieces. I, I can just see them potentially getting a goal against us here. And we've conceded uh, the first goal in the last 10 of 11 games. Um, and that that is really worrying, the fact that the defence, there's been no clean sheet in 11 matches. Um, It looks a little bit shot at the moment. And there's a lack of confidence there. I I think you can see that. Um, Trying to find solutions. That's what Nuno's always talking about. And he'll be working on that this week in training. Um, But, you know, in in this derby, they haven't haven't actually fared very well. I mean, the Premier League, they've won once of four meetings. You know, West Brom did the double the last time that they've had this in the top flight. That was in 2012. And over the the very long history that these two clubs have had, it is West Brom who have the edge. They've won on nine more occasions than Wolves have. We're talking 159 meetings in total. But you would think that given recent seasons, recent successes, that it's Wolves that should be in the driving seat, especially at Molyneux.
3: Right. Well, especially given the recent form of West Brom, who under Big Sam, boyhood Wolves fan, of course, are still looking uh, for first victory uh, after five matches to... Uh, with Allardyce in charge, eliminated last weekend from the FA Cup by League One Blackpool, of course. Duncan, Carl, do you want to cheer Lindsay up with with messages of positivity about Wolves prospects? No? Okay, I'll move on then. (laughs)
2: Uh, This is a massive game for West Brom. I mean, you know, they need a win Mm. more than Wolves, and they haven't been good at all so far. I mean, they got the 1-1 at Liverpool, but that was just strange. So, although I can sense and understand Lindsay's fear of, you know, Wolves conceding, I think, you know, this West Brom defence is is like a coconut shy in a sense. So, you know, just go all out <laughs> attack. With With who? With anyone. I mean, half the teams in the Premier League didn't play a striker this week. So, you know, you mentioned Everton, uh, Man City mm. don't. um don't need strikers, just need hope.
4: I think the positive has been Ruben Neves is finding some form and, you know, he scored in that match against yeah, Everton. goal inside... Finally, yes. an
2: open play goal inside the box. Incredible scenes. He looked so happy as well to do it. How long um, had we been waiting his, for that, Duncan? Well, this was, was his 91st Premier League game. He'd ha- it was his 12th touch inside the penalty area. But, Sorry, um, his
3: 12th touch inside the penalty area in 90-something yes. Premier League games. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he's it was absurd. his first
2: goal. I mean, he scored some penalties. He, he, re- he usually goes in the box to take a penalty. Um, but he, he popped up and volleyed and one in and, Yeah. Extraordinary does, scenes.
3: Taking a penalty. Does that count as a touch in the opposition box?
2: Yeah, he scored three penalties, so he's missed a couple, is not he? So yeah, so he doesn't get in the box very often.
3: Excellent, Carl. Uh, anything you want to add, or shall we move on to what Everton are up to this weekend?
5: Ooh, I love a bit of Everton discussion.
3: Well, Carl, the, the news is I've just heard officially they're not up to anything. They were due to be at Villa, but as training ground, still the centre of a COVID nineteen outbreak. So that fixture's not happening.
4: Sigurdsson and Hamas Rodriguez are going to be disappointed. They don't get to play up front together again.
3: Ah, yeah, they, looked, uh, they that, that looked fab- fabulous. And having Dean back there as the outlet. outlet. for. Oh,
4: Dean's fantastic. Mm. He's such a good player.
3: Anyway, they'll have a nice rest and they can watch all the other lo- lovely football games like Man City, who Carl talked about lurking there just off the top two. Uh, they are going to be at home to Crystal Palace uh, Sunday late on, quarter past seven UK time. City coming off that 1-0 win, a measured success over Brighton. Uh, Phil Foden uh, with, as we mentioned, uh, a remarkable goal actually. Quite how it snuck in. it was. Um, I think it caught everybody, including the commentators, by surprise. Raheem Sterling, perhaps less surprisingly, missing a penalty uh, late on in the game after Kevin De Bruyne had gone down in the box. Uh, City have missed seven penalties in the Premier League since the start of last season, which is more than any other side and three of those have come from Sterling himself. Hmm. Versus Palace, any particular problems you envisage, Carl?
5: Crystal yeah, Palace often strong on the counter-attack. Uh, so if this game had been played a month ago, I might have been a bit worried for Manchester City, but their centre-back pairing of Ruben Diaz and John Stones is beginning to look quite scary um, again they're not, they're not only do they have complementary strengths but they have complementary weaknesses as well so uh, I am currently of the belief that Manchester City are, are favourites of the Premier League if only because of the strength of that centre-back pairing where not only are they good ball playing centre-backs and good in the air but they, they've got recovery speed it's scary
3: although although and stop me if you've heard this before Brighton did have quite a few chances in this <clears> game on Wednesday <throat> and without actually taking them
5: Yes, uh, Brighton, that is The Brighton White. That is Brighton. Brighton
4: have so many shots, but not very many. I know Duncan will know this better, but not very many of them are on target, are they? But they they do get lots of shots off, but very few, uh, are heading towards goal.
5: I am a card carrying member of the
2: Brighton are good actually.
3: That's because they're not your team. I wonder if, if how many Brighton <laughs> fans are, are carrying that. Well, card I think at the moment. <laughs> I know
2: some Brighton fans, and they are increasingly concerned about their prospects in the sense that you know Graham Potter everyone likes Graham Potter he's obviously a a really good coach he obviously you know tries to play the game in the inverted commas right way but ultimately if you don't win any football games it it starts to become less of a football club more of an art project so if Fulham win their games in hand um, they'll go above Brighton and at that point the Brighton board have got a tricky decision to make Um, it, it would be one of those decisions where you know, no one would wants to see it, but ultimately, you've got to protect your uh, your club's position.
3: Crikey. Uh, Alex Cooney is one of those people questioning Potter's approach. Is he overthinking his team in a sort of football manager hipster way? Says Alex Cooney. White in midfield, playing the world's slowest and tallest left back. We need a goal and <laughs> dropping Mope. If they are playing well, air quotes. Now, what happens when they start playing poorly? Well, I guess that's. The concern. The other option is that maybe they could keep playing well and start scoring goals, but I don't know what's more likely. This weekend, for example, Brighton are going to be away at Leeds in what is the first top division meeting between these two sides since May 1982. Do you fancy Brighton's prospects away to the often porous Leeds bat line?
5: Not really. I can't believe... I've just contradicted myself. There is something... I think one problem about Brighton and their attacking exploits is their strikers, so Moipai... Uh, Danny Welbeck and I forget Connolly or And Connolly uh, they're all quite similar in terms of their approach so they they're like ball to feet they they try and they try to be direct runners and the you know, all three of them are streaky finishers so they do have games where they can score a goal in across three games and then they do have spells where they can go four or five games without scoring so there isn't really a plan B in attack where even though they do have really inventive ways for plan Bs in midfield and in defence, which is why they look all hipster and higgledy-piggledy. They just lack lack that knockout blow that in a Premier League season that is stranger and stranger and you can't do the sort of high-coordinated pressing and 3-8 techniques that the Premier League would previously do. I think what you're seeing now is just a league where it's all about how hard can you punch in those 20 minutes where you are in the ascendancy.
3: Well, next up for Fulham, Saturday tea time, it is that West London derby with Chelsea. Ooh, this looks potentially very interesting, not least because Chelsea have only won one of their last six in the Premier League. Now, Fulham haven't beaten Chelsea in almost 15 years, but, uh, you know,
5: what do you think? There's a potential for banana peel in this game. Chelsea's attack still isn't quite clicking in the way that it should or a number of onlookers believe it should um, N'Golo Kante is beginning to look like someone who is been crambazzled and prematurely aged by too many games of football and is no longer the all-in-one defensive midfielder that he used to be in 2018 and previous so again this Angusa Reid midfield if, if you can get the drive in there you can clog up a Chelsea attack that can be a little bit too staccato uh, I'm not going to Overwhelm in the conversation about Timo Werner, but I am going to pull a face when thinking about Timo Werner in the Premier League.
3: No, fair enough, Carl. Fair, fair enough. Who else buys into this notion that Fulham might emerge with a fat three points, a massive three points in the relegation struggle from this game against their mighty neighbours from just to the north?
4: I fancy them to get a point, so I'm not sure that they'll come away with all three, but I, mm, I think this yeah. is a game that they they've got every possibility of drawing because they're facing a Chelsea side in in a downward turn of form with a lot of eyes on them right now. There was also, what was this about Avram Grant as well possibly mm. being brought in as part of coaching staff this week I read. And um, there's just so much going around this Chelsea squad at the moment that I I think with the Fulham upturn and them having these games in hand and seeing maybe a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Um if they can if they can get a result from this and then win the other game in hand then then Brighton and Newcastle will be quaking and I think they've got that that mentality now that they can do it
2: While I concur with Lindsay and Carl that, that Fulham have got a real chance this game this is actually the most one-sided top flight fixture uh, Fulham have only ever won 6% of their of their games against Chelsea in the top flight um, although the, one of the, the most recent one they did is famous um, for Mourinho one of the first signs of Mourinho being kind of a bit uh, out there. Uh, remember he made the double substitution after 26 minutes because he was cross with Sean Mark Phillips and Joe Cole um, and brought on Drogba and someone else I can't remember. And uh, it was, yeah, it didn't really make much difference. Fulham won 1-0 and it was possibly the first time, yeah, that Mourinho, you know, showed that he wasn't this kind of infallible special one. But there was, mm. a, you know, some anger underneath.
3: It might have been Scott Parker that he brought on.
2: No, it was also... <laughs> Damien Duff. Ah, oh, sure. yes.
3: All right, OK. Interesting. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to that game now, as I am the other fixtures which we haven't had time, strangely to mention. Light like Leicester Saints, which is happening at 8 o'clock on Saturday, but we'll have a full review of how that one goes when we return early Monday morning. Uh, ditto for West Ham's clash with Burnley. Burnley have actually won three of their last four meetings with the Hammers. And uh, we'll also have a fat look forward, or perhaps not, to Arsenal-Newcastle, which won't be happening until Monday night. But after their last meeting, who can fail to be excited by that prospect? Duncan?
2: Just on West Ham Burnley, um, Chris Wood averages a goal every 58 minutes against the Hammers. It's quite a nice inversion of how Wood usually feels about Hammers. Um, (laughs) But there we go.
5: I am also looking forward to hearing the myriad mentions of the 9-0 result as Southampton play Leicester City. Right.
3: Again. Fair point. Although Saints actually have a good record away at the King Power.
5: They do indeed. I was there for their revenge tour in the 2 1 victory in January 2020, which was right. a lifetime ago.
3: Yeah. They've won their last two visits to Leicester Saints. Anyway, we'll see how they get on this weekend and report back Monday morning. Not quite done, though, with today's show. Very shortly, amongst other things, we'll be. Having a final ponder, perhaps, on the big Meza Urzel quandary as he prepares to say his farewells and head to Fernabashi. First, though, let's hear from Lee Price at Paddy Power.
7: Hello, listeners. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently to draw inspiration for this slot, and I've had a brilliant idea. Well, a copy and paste one, anyway. Today, in what is definitely not an outburst of egomania, I'm going to do a listener's question special. Don't go. First up, we have JP Knight, who asks, Do you still live at home with your mum and dad, or what? Uh, No, I'm actually currently hiding out in Power Tower in Dublin. Isolation isn't a new thing for me, as you can probably tell by these segments. Uh, Next up, we have Andrew George Harvey. He says, Years ago, Paddy himself used to do this stuff. Then you came along and ruined it. When's he coming back? It's a good question, Andy. Do you mind if I call you Andy? Oh, well. The truth is, I think Paddy's got better things to do, so you're stuck with me. Sorry. Benny Jenny asks, Of all the odds, which is your most favourite? Oof, a tough one, Benny. Uh, I think I'd have to go for anything that ends with a 1, like 2-1, 10-1, 100-1, as they require the least amount of thinking. Uh, and finally, Paddy Power writes, Any chance of some f***ing odds? You really are a liability, Lee. Ah, right, OK. Liverpool are 19-20 to, to beat Manchester United. Surely a good omen, as that was their title-winning season. Ollie's league leaders, let's say that while we can, are 5-2. to two. Chelsea are odds on to beat Fulham. Likewise, Leicester City of Southampton. Leeds are favourites against Brighton, but they're evens. Wolves, West Ham, City and Arsenal are all also odds on to win this weekend. Bye-bye.
3: You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. This midweek, there was cup action across the continent. Uh, a weird four-team Super Cup in Spain and Germany. Bundesliga Zwei team, that's the second division, uh, Holstein Kiel knocked Champions of Europe Bayern Munich out of their Pokal via a penalty shootout. The Storks, as Holstein Kiel are known, go through to the last 16. Bayern have to face up to their second defeat in a week. Crikey. In France, meanwhile, it was the French community Shield, the Trophée des Champions. And PSG beat Marseille 2-1, which means Mauricio Pochettino has now got some silverware for the first time in his uh, storied career. Uh, Meantime, back home, we're edging closer to a pretty historic event in North London as Mesut Ozil starts packing up his bag and boxing up those mementos and heading towards a deal with Fenerbahce that Fenerbahce says closer than ever. When you look back, but the fanfares and excitement that greeted him when he arrived for a club record fee in 2013, it's a sad way for him to be departing.
0: Mesut Ozil is now going to be playing in the
3: Premier League for <laughs> <laughs> Ozil hasn't actually appeared for Arsenal since March 2020, although we've seen some lovely pictures of him in the stands with sun umbrellas and that kind of thing. Uh, but in the meantime, we've had loads of uh, interesting op-eds and think pieces about what the issue has been, why a team that for so long struggled with creativity in the midfield, was willing to leave him out. There's been wild speculation about what has led to his exclusion, whether it was football reasons or possibly off-field reasons. Some have linked it to his friendship with the Turkish president, Erdogan, others, uh, the amount of... um, effort he's put behind highlighting the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims in, in China and the effect that that might have had on Arsenal, some people linking that to the fact that Arsenal games were taken off state television in China and the club's desire to maybe minimise his profile as a result. Arsenal, it should be said, have uh, denied that and stated that his non-selection was entirely for football reasons. So what do you think, Lindsay Carr and Duncan?
5: I think if you did the blind statistical sheet... And went look at all the look. This is how the Arsenal team play. This is what they need. And I covered up the name and I said, "Do you think this player would have a use for Arsenal?" Um, I think nearly everyone would say yes. I think the footballing the footballing reasons to to not play or make sense if you are of the opinion Arsenal are going for a Champions League place this season and, and regard themselves as a Champions League entity. If you are of the opinion that Arsenal are in the middle of a rebuild and will probably be Europa League team for a bit, then the, the blind CV test would make you go, no, you, you, you play that player and you play that player for as long as possible. I think without getting too much into social-political uh, conversation, unfortunately, the problem between Arsenal and meza Ozil is that meza Ozil is Mesut Ozil. He is a very particular individual with... Uh, very particular beliefs and he's unafraid of voicing those uh, and it is a very difficult unfortunate situation that such a talented football player is not going to end his arsenal career in a way that he probably should have done because for a long time he was a fantastic servant to that football club
2: but he's a very modern player, kind of internet age player in the sense that, you know, we've seen players before get kind of moved out of uh, the team and, and just kind of discarded by clubs and, you know, they, you either don't hear from them or, they, they, or they've got contacts in newspapers who they complain to. But Ozil's so good on social media that he's managed to almost build up a, a kind of uh, you know, like when there were two Popes, one in Avignon and one in Rome, he's almost <laughs> built like a like a second Arsenal that he's running. And, yeah. it's, you know, it's massively split the Arsenal fan base. Um, and I think for both parties, it is probably good that, that they move on because it's not doing either of them much good. I mean, but just on the kind of on the field, Angle you know he didn't assist a goal away from home um, since the old ten pound note the paper ten pound went, note went out of circulation and he never assisted a goal away at Liverpool Spurs and Chelsea, so for how good he was and on his day he was incredible um, got those nineteen assists in, in two thousand fourteen fifteen you know there, there were legitimate reasons to to think that he didn't always do it in the biggest Mm games particularly away from home
4: ultimately there's been a changing of the guard at Arsenal in every sense ever since Wenger went away and he was on huge huge wages and I I honestly think that a lot of it was to do with the impression that he would give the younger players coming through and the sort of role model status and work ethic status that needs to be ingrained there and that's something that Arteta is very passionate about um I honestly think when you look at the likes of Saka, um, Martinelli, um, Enketia, Smith-Rowe, all of these players coming through, you need them to look to someone who's training really, really hard, bringing back to the tracking back. I I think that was a huge part of it. I think it was a huge part of it, even though there should be special dispensation for certain players who are immensely talented to have a little bit more freedom. And we've seen that in the past. Maybe it could have been handled differently. But I I think that was the crux of the matter. I think that's what it came down to, was was how this club are now going to move forward with the next generation.
3: Sort of like the way it broke down then with Gwendouzi.
4: Yeah. Although Gwendouzi is no Ozil. (laughs)
2: Well, at least Ozil is going to depart the Premier League with the same number of headed goals as Vinnie Jones, two players I often bracket together.
3: (laughs) Although one question does remain unanswered in all of this, and that is who will pay Gunnar Soares' wages? Anyway, uh, hopefully some uh, right-thinking philanthropists perhaps within the squad will step in uh, to pick up that particular question. responsibility from Mr. Urzo who certainly left us with some terrific memories. Uh, that, anyway, uh, brings us to the end of our particular journey today. Uh, many thanks to Lindsay and Carl and Duncan and producer Charlie and you, listener, for being with us. We return, of course, on Monday morning, very early on, with our thoughts about the weekend. So hopefully you'll be joining us for
1: that. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of The Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.